focusing on the cross. And the Lord would have each one of us to behold the cross of Christ. Now you cannot see the cross of Christ with physical eyes, and it will not make any sense to you. If you are sitting here as one who is, is dead in your sins and trespasses, the cross will make absolutely no sense. But if you have found life in Jesus Christ, then you can say that your, the burden of your heart has also been rolled away. The burden of your heart has been rolled away. And I'm, I'm reminded again of, of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. When Christian, who is, is carrying this heavy burden, which represents his guilt and his sin, when he arrives at the foot of the cross, what happens to that burden? It falls off his back and rolls into the sepulcher, never to be seen again. And so if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then your burdens have been rolled away. So let's, as we, as we read this passage of Scripture, let's stand together at a reverence for the Word of our God and let's consider the cross. Let's consider what the cross means about God and let's consider what the cross means for us personally. John chapter 19, verse 16. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one, other, one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, knowing that all was now finished, Jesus he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. 
A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine onto a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and the bo- so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the, uh, of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And in another scripture says, they will look on him who they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fears of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes and cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden was a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. On October 14, 1066, a battle was fought that would change the course of English history. Speaking of the Battle of Hastings, the newly crowned King of England, the Anglo-Saxon Harold II, faced a second major threat to his reign. Less than a month after defeating a rebellion led by his own brother and the King of Norway at the Battle of Stanford Bridge, news came of an invasion of Norman French troops led by William the Conqueror, Duke William of Normandy. King Harold quickly marched his troops south to face the invaders. And Harold faced a larger and better equipped and more experienced army. Harold's army was comprised mainly of of infantry, many of whom had been hastily conscripted on the march south. William, on the other hand, arriving with his army in hundreds of ships, had along with his infantry a large complement of archers and cavalry. Harold tried to take William by surprise, but scouts detected his troops and sounded the warning. The usual tactic in medieval battle was to use archers to decimate the enemy infantry before sending in your own infantry, and then followed by the cavalry to, to weaken to route the weakened battle lines. Arrows rained down on the Anglo-Saxon infantry, but they held the high ground of the hill above the Norman forces. 
and the volleys of arrows could not penetrate the wall of shields held by Harold's men in positions above the archers. William then had no choice but to send in his infantry. And as they advanced up the hill, they were bombarded with spears and stones from the positions above them. They suffered heavily casualties and were forced to retreat. Next, William sent his cavalry. These were soldiers on horseback, and they had a major advantage above foot soldiers. Not only did they have the advantage of speed, but they could also attack from above. The ground shook with the hooves of the charging horses. But once they reached the hill, the steep slope slowed their advance, and they could not penetrate the wall of shields and were beaten back by Anglo-Saxon huskarls and their battle axes. Wave after wave was repelled by Harold's troops. Then a rumor broke out that William was dead. And panic ensued amongst his troops, and many of, of Harold's ranks, of Harold's troops broke ranks and charged against the, the retreating Normans. But their retreat was slowed by the boggy ground, and so Harold's men had, his, his, had their way with those retreating forces. But then, very much alive, William removed his helmet and rode past his troops, emboldening his beleaguered soldiers. And again, he sent his cavalry against Harold's men. But seeing the horses bearing down on them, they tried to retreat back up the hill, but were cut down because they did not have the protection of the shield wall. Now, seeing the effect of this, William decided to use the Anglo-Saxons' eagerness to fight to his advantage. So again, he sent his cavalry to charge the ranks, but this time with an order to feign retreat. And after the initial charge was beaten back, the riders turned as if to flee. But this time, when Harold's men broke ranks to chase after them, the horses turned and immediately charged killing many of Harold's men. And now William risked everything. The, his archers had run out of arrows earlier, so he sent them forwards to, to, to pick up the arrows that, 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 that had fallen on the ground. And this time when they fired, their, their, their batteries of, of arrows went over the front lines and, and attacked the rear of Harold's infantry. An arrow struck King Harold in the eye. The king was dead. News of his death quickly, quickly went through the ranks and, and they were demoralized. And now William ordered a full assault on the Anglo-Saxon lines. And they were decimated. And the battle was won. Within two months, William had taken London. On a Christmas day, 1066, he was crowned in Westminster Abbey as the first Norman king of England. The Anglo-Saxon rule in England had come to an end. This one battle completely changed the apparent course of English history. Although it looked like King Harold was going to have a quick victory against William, how quickly the tide had turned. With his death, the battle was over. The Anglo-Saxons were defeated, and not just at this one battle, but they no longer figured in English history. And that's the way it so often is in, in history and in fiction. When the hero dies, the story ends. 
Now, historians are divided as to how they view King Harold. Was he a, a hero who came oh so close to saving his nation? Or was he a reckless novice whose rash decisions on the battlefield cost him his kingdom and his life? People are divided as to how they view Jesus Christ in the events of cavalry, cavalry as well. One thousand years later, on that Passover in AD, so prior, on that Passover in AD 33, Jesus would die. The optics weren't good. It appeared as this, as if this was the ultimate defeat. It appeared that here the story would end. But this was no ordinary hero. This wasn't merely a human king. This was the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the one that the disciples had hoped would deliver Israel from captivity. This was God the Son. It looked like defeat. It looked like victory for the Jews and for the Romans and for Satan himself. But Jesus had warned his disciples in Matthew 26, 31 that Zechariah 13, 7 applied to them, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This prophecy had been fulfilled. The shepherd had been struck and the sheep were scattered. The king was dead and the disciples fled. But the fulfillment of this prophecy reveals that this death was not a defeat. In fact, it was a victory. Now here we know well that Jesus died, but that three days later he rose from the grave. That he had victory over death. It's true, three days later Jesus did win the ultimate victory. But even this event was a victory. But unlike the death of King Harold II, the death of Jesus won the victory. The fulfillment of Zechariah 13 proves it. And repeatedly in our text this morning, John says this was to fulfill the scripture. This was to fulfill the scripture. In fact, this morning we're going to see 10 fulfillments in the death of Jesus that prove, that prove, beloved, that his death was not a defeat, but victory. The first one we see is in in verses 16 to 18a. They crucified him. They crucified him. Now this fulfillment is actually two in one. The first is the he and the they, the pronouns referring, of course, to the Romans, to Pontius Pilate and to the Roman soldiers, respectively. And the second fulfillment is the means of his death on a Roman cross. They made Jesus carry the horizontal beam of his cross through the city and out of the city gates to Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Now, there's a hill just outside the walls of Jerusalem with with what looks remarkably like the face of a skull in the side. You can still see it to this day, and this is considered by many to be the actual site of the crucifixion. 
Like the blasphemers of, of Leviticus 24.14, Jesus was, was put to death outside the camp. He suffered outside the gate. Hebrews 13.12. Then they proceeded to, to put Jesus on the ground and they drove nine-inch spikes through his wrists into the horizontal beam. And then they raised him up and fastened the horizontal beam to the vertical, suspending Jesus above the ground, and then drove, a, drove another spike through his ankles. I spoke last week of the role that Pilate played in the death of Jesus. But Pilate was never more than a bit player. In response to Pilate's arrogant claim that he had the power to release Jesus or to crucify him, Jesus told him that the only power that he had had been given to him from above. But that those who had delivered Jesus over to Pilate had the greater sin. Referring there to the Jews. Pilate and the Jews had acted according to their, will, their wicked, sinful will, but they were actually fulfilling the plan of God. Yes, Jesus was handed over, and the Romans did the job, but it was God's plan all along. Peter declared this in Acts 2.23. We looked at it last week. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. They acted according to their wicked will. But it was God's plan. I want you to notice that the Gospels don't, don't go into much detail describing the crucifixion. Each of the Gospel writers simply says, they crucified him. They crucified him. They don't go into the detail of describing the pounding, pounding of his nails through his wrists and his ankles. They don't describe the agony of having to, to, put, to put weight on the mangled nerve endings for each breath. They don't describe the slow asphyxiation that takes place as excruciating pain racks the victim's body, causing him to lose strength. Why not? Why don't they describe these details? Well, I believe that part of the answer is that the first recipients of the Gospels were very familiar with the horrors of crucifixion. They regularly saw people executed by the Romans in this way. They didn't need the details. But I believe, that, I believe the bigger reason is that to focus on the physical suffering of Jesus is to detract from what he was really suffering. That's one of the main reasons I don't like movies about the life of Jesus. Not only do, do such movies, I believe, fracture the second commandment in creating a, an image of God and invariably include unbiblical details, but they also ignore important biblical details. They ignore the most crucial biblical detail. They focus on the physical pain that Jesus suffered on the cross and ignore the message of the Gospels as to what he was really suffering. The physical pain of crucifixion was not unique to Jesus. Many thousands of people were crucified by the Romans. And two men were being crucified right next to him. And this is the second fulfillment. They crucified him between two robbers, verse 18b. 
John goes on to say that he was with two others, one on either side, Jesus between them. Luke refers to them as criminals, and Matthew and Mark refer to them as, as robbers. And John uses the same word to describe Barabbas. So these two men were probably guerrilla fighters as well. They were probably guilty of murder. Of murder. This is the fulfillment of the, of the ministry of the suffering servant from Isaiah 53, 12, who was numbered among the transgressors. We've talked about Isaiah 53 many times. It's, it's, it's amazing just how perfectly Jesus fulfilled Isaiah 53. And not just Isaiah 53, but that whole, that whole last part of, of Isaiah, of the, the suffering servant. Jesus was numbered among the transgressors. And it's shocking to consider that Jesus would be killed between, it's shocking that Jesus would, would even be killed, but to be killed between such wicked men. These men deserve to die. They, they even joined the chorus of those mocking Jesus. Imagine that. Struggling to breathe, they used the, the precious air in their lungs to mock Jesus. But consider the horror of someone cursing God as they step out of this life and into his holy presence. Luke tells us in Luke 23, 39, that one of them said, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself on us. They mocked him. But then something amazing happened. The other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man acknowledged that he was guilty. This man acknowledged that he deserved to die. But this man also acknowledged that Jesus was innocent. And he acknowledged that he needed Jesus to save him. Talk about a deathbed conversion. The flames of hell were licking at this man's heels. But God grants him repentance unto salvation. And Jesus here says some of the most beautiful words that have ever been spoken. Truly, I say to you, you will be, today you will be with me in paradise. Beloved, there is no more glorious promise. And it is the possession of all those whose faith is in Jesus. Maybe not today, but one glorious day you will be with Jesus in paradise. But there may be some people here who are waiting. Thinking that one day down the track they can get right with God. But you may not have that opportunity. You don't know when you'll step out of this life and into God's presence. The third fulfillment we find in verses 19 to 22. Jesus the King. We now turn our attention back to Pilate. 
He wrote an inscription and placed it on the cross. And it was common practice to, to write the name of, of the one being crucified and the crime that they had committed on a placard and put it above their head on the cross. This would serve as a warning against committing similar crimes. It was a very powerful statement of what Rome did to its enemies. But the sign that was over Jesus' head, saying, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Pilate had early declared twice, that three times, that he found no sin in Jesus. The only crime that Jesus had committed was being King of the Jews. I spoke about this at length about this last week. Jesus wasn't merely the king of the Jews. He is the king of kings. He told Pilate that he came to fulfill the role that was given to him by his heavenly father. He came into the world as the king of kings. But his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is an eternal, eternal kingdom. It was inaugurated in his incarnation and will be established at his return. But many Jews read the inscription. It was there for them all to see in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek, the common tongues of the day. Pilate didn't wrote this because he, he really believed and had faith in Jesus. He, he was mocking Jesus and he was mocking the Jews. And the chief priests were indignant. So they said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And so Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Arturo Zerdia says that, that this, this was actually the first gospel tract that was ever written. And it was written at the hands of this wicked dictator, Pilate. The fourth fulfillment, we find in verses 23 and 24, the soldiers divided his garments. There were four soldiers who served as executioners in the crucifixion of Jesus, and it was customary for them to take anything on his person of any value. And all Jesus had was what he was wearing. And so they divided his clothes between them. But his tunic, the garment that, that was worn uh, under the cloak and over the skin was valuable, even with the blood stains all over it. It was valuable because it was seamless. It was woven in one piece, and so they didn't want to rip it into four pieces, so they cast lots for it to see who would get it. And here John uses this term that it repeats three times in the passage. The message of, 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 this, of this passage is that this was to fulfill the Scripture. And then John quotes Psalm 28, 18. Please turn with me there in your Bibles. Psalm 28. Sorry, Psalm 22, 18. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22 was written by King David around a thousand years before the cross. And although he's describing his own experience, he was speaking prophetically about the suffering of Jesus. And you see fulfillments all through this psalm. 
I would encourage you this afternoon to go and to, to sit with your families and to look a, a, again at Psalm 18 and see the fulfillments in the cross. As a type of Christ, the suffering of David pointed ahead to the crucifixion. We're going to, to refer back to Psalm 22 again later. But look also at the description of these soldiers in verse 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. This was written a thousand years before Jesus came to earth and took on human flesh. It was fulfilled at the cross. Number five. We see fulfillment in the spectators at the cross in verses 25 to 27. D.A. Carson points out the contrast between the soldiers and the women here introduced. He says, while the soldiers carry out their barbaric task and coolly profit from the exercise, the women wait in faithful devotion to the one whose death they can still understand only as tragedy. Consider the scene. These women who loved Jesus were there gathered at the foot of the cross witnessing his death. Again, this too is a fulfillment of prophecy. Consider for a moment what it must have felt like for Mary to witness her son dying right before her very eyes, that horrific death. But this shouldn't have come to us as a surprise to Mary. It had been foretold during the infancy of Jesus. Turn please to Luke chapter 2, verse 29. Luke 2, 29. Here we see the prophecy of Simeon. The Bible describes as an, as an aged man who was who was a godly man, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, he prophesies as he takes Jesus in his arms, the infant Jesus, and blessed God and prophesied that Jesus would be a light for the Gentiles and a glory to, God, to God's people Israel. This was Jesus' first trip to Jerusalem. Here as an infant, as his parents fulfill the, the command to, to, to devote their firstborn son to God. And Simeon blessed them and says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that it is, it is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts of many may be revealed. This event is, among so many other things, the piercing of Mary's heart. They say that it is one of the greatest tragedies in this world when a parent outlives their child. And I witnessed this in Australia when my friend Luke was killed in an automobile collision. And after Luke's death, I became quite close to his family. The grief that they experienced was absolutely heart-wrenching. This is a grief that few can understand. 
16 years later, you can still see the uh, profound effects on them. And so even just on a human level, Mary was grieving the death of her son. But she understood on a level that her son was the Messiah. She saw that from this prophecy. She had heard it from, from his teaching again and again. But she didn't fully grasp what this meant. We see also in this event the care of Jesus for his mother. The fulfillment of the command to honor his parents. As the eldest son, his responsibility was, was to care for his mother. And he was about to die, but his brothers couldn't be depended on to care for her. So Jesus commits her to the care of, we believe it was John, his beloved disciple. So he says to John, Behold your mother. And to Mary, woman, behold your son. And here, um, again, Arturo Azurdia suggests that, that this, this term referring to his mother as, as woman, as he did back in, in John chapter 2, is not a term of disrespect, but, but points to the, the fact that their relationship was not merely that of mother-son, but of Lord and disciple. And only after the, the resurrection would the disciples begin to understand this? Fulfillment number six, 28 to 30, Jesus is given vinegar to drink. So this is another fulfillment, but I, I, I'd like us here to see the intentionality of Jesus in this fulfillment. Verse 28 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said, and John inserts in parentheses, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Jesus knew that he was fulfilling scripture with this statement. And here we, we, we see another messianic psalm, Psalm 69. Please turn with me there, please. Here King David writes in verse 3, I am weary with my crying out, my throat is parched. Now, of course, Jesus was thirsty. Not only was he hanging there exposed in the hot Middle Eastern sun. He was in agony. Each breath was torture. But even in his profound pain, he was fulfilling scripture. He was intentionally fulfilling the eternal plan of God. The soldiers, on the other hand, in their wickedness, were unconsciously fulfilling the eternal plan of God. So when Jesus says, I thirst, they had no mercy on him. But in God's providence, there happened to be a, a jar of sour wine, a jar of vinegar, right there. So they dipped a sponge in the vinegar, and they, they put it on, on a, a hyssop branch and lifted it up to Jesus' mouth. Now, I don't believe that it's coincidence that hyssop was used as well to dab blood on the doorposts in that first Passover. 
But when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He knew that he had fulfilled everything he had to fulfill in this life. So he gave up his spirit. He had taught earlier in John 10, verses 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. No one took Jesus' life, he laid it down. He remained the sovereign God through every moment of his incarnation. His mission was accomplished, so he gave up his spirit. He had glorified his Father on earth, having accomplished the work that he gave him to do. John 17, 4. And so he could say, It is finished. I'm going to look now at number seven and eight together. In verses 31 to 33, we see that his bones weren't broken. And in verses 34 to 37, we see that they pierced his side. They pierced his side. Now, this was the day of preparation. It's the day of preparation for the Passover. And this was, it was a, a high Sabbath. Not just the, the normal seventh day rest. This was a, a special Sabbath during the, at the end of the Passover. Where, they, where the Jews would, would celebrate. They would kill the Passover lamb and, and celebrate the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And look forward to the coming Messiah who would deliver them ultimately. And here they're they're, they're looking to to obey Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. That if a man is, is committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So the Jews asked Pilate that these men would have their legs broken. Now what would happen if in crucifixion is that, as I alluded to earlier, that, that in order to breathe, you had to put weight on those spikes that were going through the nerve endings in your wrists and ankles. But when their their bones were broken and their legs, they could no longer support the weight with their legs. So they would quickly suffocate and die. So they would take a large mallet and smash the legs of the men on on the cross so that they would die. For one criminal, they shattered his legs and ushered him into hell. But for the other criminal... They were ushering him into eternal life with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they didn't break his bones. 
This is yet another fulfillment of Psalm 22. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. And also Psalm 34, 20, He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Yet another fulfillment that points to who Jesus is, that points to this death was not defeat, but victory. So instead of breaking his bones, a soldier took a spear and thrust it into Jesus' side, and blood and water flowed out. Blood from his heart, along with fluid from the pericardial sac, flowed out of his lifeless body, proving that he was dead. There could be no question that he died. Jesus didn't just swoon on the cross like some heretically suggest. He was dead. And yet again, this is another fulfillment of prophecy. This one is also from Zechariah 13. Zechariah 13.1 On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. The hymn writer William Cooper describes this in his hymn, There is a fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. So this was a fulfillment of Zechariah 13.1, but it was also a fulfillment, and, and John quotes this directly, of Zechariah 12.10. They will look on him whom they have pierced. They will look on him whom they have pierced. And this is repeated in Revelation 1, 7 and 8, referring to the return of Jesus, this time fulfilling all things and bringing final victory. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and is to come, the Almighty. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Lord God. He is the Almighty. And one day he will return. Bringing final and complete victory. Fulfillment number nine, verses 38 to 42. He made his grave with the rich. He made his grave with the rich. Even the burial of Christ is a fulfillment. Here we meet two rich men, Joseph of Arimathea, and we also are reintroduced to another rich man, Nicodemus, the Pharisee that we met back in John chapter 3. First, let's consider Nicodemus. Nicodemus had come to Jesus by night, probably in fear of the other Pharisees and what they would think if he went to, to, to Jesus. And Jesus there confronted him with the reality that he must be born again. 
So you can imagine that for the three years of Jesus' ministry, Nicodemus was pondering these things and was witness to many of the conversations that had taken place between the Sanhedrin and Jesus as Jesus had, had declared again and again who he was. And the Sanhedrin again and again rejected him. But it seems that Nicodemus laid these things up in his heart. Joseph of Arimathea was, was a rich man who had been a secret disciple of Jesus. Now, beloved, no disciple of Jesus remains a secret disciple. And so he goes and asks Pilate for the body of Jesus. And Pilate gives it to him. And then Nicodemus takes a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about, about 75 pounds worth, and, and wraps the body of Jesus in it. And then his body is, is, is it's bound in linen clothes with the spices. This was, was commonly the way that, that people were buried in, in, in Israel. And they would then put the body in a cave. And John tells us, that in the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden was a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. But because of the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now I mentioned earlier that, that, at, Golgotha, that at what is believed to be Golgotha, the, 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 the hill of the skull, that, that just a stone's throw away inside the gates of the city, there was a garden. It's a beautiful garden, and, and we know that it was a garden because there's a large cistern there that would have been used to water the, the plants of that garden. Guess what else is there in that garden? A tomb hewn out of the rock. And there, there is a a, a groove where there would have, been, would have been a large stone that would have been rolled in place of that tomb. Now, we don't know for certain that this was the actual tomb where Jesus was laid. But we do know that Jesus was taken down from the cross, that his body was anointed with these spices, and that he was placed in a tomb. This is yet another fulfillment of Isaiah 53. It's believed that, that this tomb actually belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. Isaiah 53.9 says that Jesus was, or that the Messiah was with a rich man in his death. With a rich man in his death. And now, in conclusion, we, we need to look at the final fulfillment from the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus is the fulfillment of God's righteousness. The fulfillment of God's righteousness. How can the excruciating death of Jesus be a victory? We've seen again and again how the, the, the death of Jesus was the fulfillment of prophecy, how it was the fulfillment of the plan of God. The crucifixion of Jesus was not a defeat, it was victory. God had planned it. The crucifixion was the plan from the beginning. 
All of redemption history, all of history, all of eternity pointed to this moment. From the Lord God killing an animal to cover Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 to the killing of the Passover lambs in Exodus 12 and the entire sacrificial system to Jesus telling the disciples again and again that he would be crucified to the, 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 the law and the prophets. It all pointed to Jesus and to his death. Now we know that the agony suffered by Jesus on the cross was, was physically excruciating. But that does not compare. It doesn't compare to the agony that suffered by Jesus as he faced the rejection and wrath of his heavenly Father. It was so horrific that it caused Jesus to cry out, Eloi, Eloi, Labasabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus truly was forsaken by God on the cross. This was the first time in all of eternity when there was a break in the unity between the Father and the Son. And again, this is fulfillment of prophecy. Again, from Psalm 22, verse 1. These were the very words that were on the lips of King David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So again, as a type of Christ, the suffering that King David experienced pointed to the suffering of Jesus on the cross. Beloved, Jesus was forsaken so that we could be accepted. And this was the fulfillment of God's righteousness. Not only did Jesus fulfill God's righteousness by perfectly obeying his Father to the point of death on a cross, he fulfilled all of the commandments of God with every moment of his life. He fulfilled the righteousness of God. But also the death of Jesus fulfilled the righteousness of God so that God can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 3.26. Earlier I referred to Deuteronomy 21, 22 and 23. Cursed is the one who was hanged on a tree. Jesus was cursed by God. For us, he was cursed for his elect. Without the death of Jesus, we would still be dead in our sins and trespasses. Without the, uh, the death of Jesus, we would die the second death, suffering eternally in a lake of fire. Christ's death was substitutionary. He died in our place. It should have been us on that cross being tortured and killed. It should have been us on that cross bearing the wrath of God. But Jesus did it instead. Jesus suffered those horrors for us. And this is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 4-6. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Beloved, this is the victory of Christ on the cross. This is the victory in the death of Jesus. But this death didn't just change the course of history. This was the event towards which all of history points. So when you consider the cross of Christ, is his victory applied to you? Is his victory over sin and death and hell your victory? Or are you still dead in your sins and trespasses? Is the wrath of God still on you? The only way the victory of Jesus on the cross can be applied to you is for you to turn away from your sin and receive new life in Christ, to put your faith in Him so that your guilt might be taken away and that His perfect righteousness can be given to you. This is the only way to receive eternal life. Let's pray. Glorious God, only you could put together the plan whereby your righteousness and your love and mercy, whereby your holiness and your grace could be exalted. Father, I pray that you would cause us all that everyone who Here's my words. Lord, we're here in it, a command to turn from sin, to turn to Christ, and to find life in the death of the Son of God. We pray this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.